Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. On a time when there's just seemingly stunning news almost on a daily basis this weekend, uh, we uh, heard of the passing of Justice Ginsburg uh, from the Supreme Court, raising immediate questions about replacement of uh, Justice Ginsburg, as well as the political ramifications heading into just the final weeks of the presidential election. Help us kind of parse through that. We are fortunate to have uh, Jeannie Zeno, political science professor at Iona College. Uh, Professor, thanks so much for joining us here Give us your sense of kind of the passing of Justice Ginsburg. How does that change the narrative here uh, in the final weeks heading into this election? Yeah, I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. News just breaking almost every moment, it seems. And to hear that news late on Friday, particularly on a Jewish holiday, so important to so many Jewish Americans. She was the first woman um, who was Jewish to sit on the court, only the second woman on the court. And she served for so long and so nobly and so beloved by so many people, men and women, that it was really just, you know, stunning and sad to hear the news. And of course, in the midst, 40, now 43 days to an election, and we understand that she had dictated to her granddaughter her wish that she not be replaced until the next president was inaugurated. Um, so, you know, just stunning all around and an already really contentious election that seemed to be, you know, decided by, you know, the big issues were going to be COVID, they were going to be the economy. And now, of course, you put into the mix the future of the Supreme Court. And of course, we are talking about the future of the Supreme Court because she was a solid liberal on a court that is increasingly conservative and hanging in the balance, as Democrats have been talking about for the last few days, are things like the future of the Affordable Care Act and, of course, Roe v. Wade, abortion and so many other issues. So what does the justices passing do to the odds of Democrats flipping the Senate? Does the passing mobilize a voting base that wouldn't have been mobilized anyway? It's such a good question because traditionally it's been conservatives, Republicans who have cared so much and voted you know, year after year, every four years on the future of the Supreme Court. And in fact, we look back at 2016, and one of the key reasons many Republicans who were and moderates who were on the fence about Donald Trump decided to vote for him was because he did something unprecedented. He released a list of conservatives he would name to the court, and that really made them support him. And of course, he was able to nominate and confirm two justices. But now it seems like Democrats have suddenly caught up to the fact that they, too, have a real interest in the court. You know, part of what has been going on is since the early 70s, the court has been largely liberal, but increasingly conservative now. Democrats seem to be energized. We saw outrageous fundraising numbers, incredible on the Democratic side in the days since Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed to indicate there's a lot of energy there. So a long-winded way of saying, I think that we're Whereas Republicans usually vote on the court in much larger numbers than Democrats, I think this year we may see for the first time a switch there. We don't know yet, but if Democrats are able to do that and able to take the Senate, that could really change the game. Maybe not about this nomination to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but the court going forward, because we've heard over the weekend Democrats talking about things like packing the court. 
So I guess just in the immediate term, Professor, is it your sense that the Republicans will be able to get a nominee through in time? It's going to be very dicey. The Congressional Research Service says it's traditionally about or average 69 days. We're looking at about 43 days until Election Day. But what I would caution is that, you know, we have 43 days until Election Day, but we have much longer until the inauguration. So whether we get a nomination before Election Day is, I think, a little bit tougher. But I think certainly Republicans could push through a nomination before Inauguration Day. And then, depending on who won the presidency and took the Senate, you could be talking about a lame duck president's nomination going through and a lame duck Senate confirming. So that, I think, would really add to the firestorm and and really strong feelings out there. But I do think it's possible. One thing to watch is any of these Republicans that are on the fence, of course, we know Lisa Murkowski, for instance, Susan Collins, Mitt Romney. I think those are the people to watch right now. Do they put a stop to this? Because it would really take about four Republicans putting a stop to this. And let's not forget, the senators all want to go home and campaign, many of them running in tight seats. So it is a very difficult time for the Republicans to push this through. It could be done, but I think it's going to be an uphill battle. Jeannie, what would be defectors' motivations for not voting? So what would be in it, let's say, for any Republican senator that decided they didn't want to back a nominee? I mean, some of the nominees are probably people that they would be quite happy to back in another year. Absolutely. I think number one would be this issue of hypocrisy. Say they had publicly stated that they didn't want to vote on Merrick Garland four years ago when Obama named him, to now go back on that and to then have to face voters in their district. I, so I think there's that you know issue of quote-unquote hypocrisy. But I also think importantly, it's that they have to face voters in their district, many of whom are in purple states, they are facing tough re-election bids. So people like Susan Collins, she's already about 12 points down in her race. She got a lot of flack for supporting Judge Kavanaugh, as we remember. And that's one of the reasons why she's not doing so well in her, her race now. So I think the combination of those two things makes it very difficult for Republicans to say we should wait on this. Professor, is there a sense that the average American voter cares about the Supreme Court? Yeah, you know, as since I teach the court, I want to say yes, yes, yes. <laughs> it's, you know, but that's just self-interested. It's usually not the number one issue. But again, for Republicans, it has been an issue of real importance. And I think, and this is something I think we're all going to have to watch, it looks like we may see the same thing happen with Democrats this time around. You know, the numbers we're hearing, $90 million raised in, in you know, 48 hours or whatever that number was since Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed on the Democratic side. Those are huge numbers and indicate that Democrats do care. Now, do they care more than they care about the pandemic, more than they care about getting rid of Donald Trump or supporting Donald Trump, depending on their side? We don't know yet. But I do think that, you know, if there's any year where the court is important, it's going to be this year. Yeah, that's for sure. And uh, President Trump saying this morning on Fox that we will have a name on Friday. So, We shall see. That may or may not happen, but that's at least uh, his plan today anyway. Jeannie, thank you so much for jumping on with us. Uh, Really just wonderful perspective there from Jeannie Zeno, political science professor at Iona College. And indeed, if we have a name on Friday, 
you know, we already have a short list and obviously the president has already said he wants his pick confirmed by the November 3rd election. So whether the confirmation itself is possible or not, there would at least be a big effort in that direction. We know, of course, that uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is all on board with that idea. Well, as Charlie Pellet was just reporting, markets are plumbing their lows right here with the S&P off about two and a quarter percent. Is this an entry point for Tom Keene to get out of his triple leverage all cash fund or is this signaling something new for the markets? We're fortunate to have Matt Maley join us to answer some of those questions. Matt is a managing director and chief market strategist at Miller Tayback and Company. Matt, let's just start off real quickly. What do you, what do you make of today's action and, and even that of the last several days? Well, you know, it's something I thought that uh, uh, we were kind of ripe for anyway. I mean, obviously, we have some new news out here that has, has uh, raised concerns about uh, what's going on in the marketplace. But, you know, we have to remember that back in the beginning of September, I mean, we had the, mar- the market overall, and especially these mega cap tech names, had become incredibly overbought, incredibly overvalued. Uh, and uh, usually when you get the, the, the huge extremes we had then, I mean, they weren't the extremes we saw in 1999 and 2000, but they were still very, very big. And usually when you see a, a pullback like that, it comes in more than one wave. The first wave kind of makes people a little nervous, but it's usually not enough to uh, uh, wash out the froth that's in the marketplace. And it's usually a second wave, which we seem to be getting right now, that finally kind of washes things out. So in many ways, this is scary, but, uh, but it was predictable, and uh, it's also normal and healthy. How much is this an election trade, Matt, with all of the healthcare stocks, uh, or at least the insurance component in healthcare, lower? Well, it's, it's certainly uh, a big part of it because we now have even more uncertainty in, in, involved. I mean, a, a lot of people have strong opinions about what uh, what the uh, should happen here with uh, with the, the, the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and, and what what should you know should we have somebody before uh, should President Trump have uh, be able to uh, nominate and 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 get somebody installed before uh, the election? We can talk about that all we want, but a lot of people are don't have strong opinions and are very unsure about what what it will mean for the uh, for the election. Will it be more positive for President uh, Trump? Will it be more positive for Biden? We don't know. So there's already a lot of uncertainty in that in that issue. It creates more uncertainty. And of course, markets just don't like uncertainty, as we all know. All right, Matt. So how are you approaching the market these days? Are you constructive here? And if so, kind of, are you still in that growth techie trade? Or are you suggesting perhaps people think about rotating into some more cyclical names to the extent that we can look to the other side of this pandemic? Yeah, I think uh, people should be looking to rotate a little bit. Now, again, uh, we had, you know, what do you want to call it, a bubble uh, or, or not? We certainly had a huge uh, overvaluation situation with the tech stocks. But again, not like 2000. So it's not like, oh, my gosh, dump all your tech stocks. There's, I mean, these megacac tech stocks that were doing so well, were doing well for a reason. They just went too far. Uh, so you don't want to dump the whole group. Uh, you still want to be uh, uh, invested in, the, in these tech names, especially on any further weakness, so you can add to them. Uh, but I do, you know, you look at what the, what's happened in some of these uh, economically sensitive groups, like the railroad stocks and some of these material names. And of course, housing has done very well all, all along. Uh, so these are the kind of groups you want to be rotating towards uh, as, as if the market comes back in a little bit more, which I think it will. And and that'll uh, really bode well, I think, for uh, for the longer term. Matt, you've always been a specialist in bank stocks, both sides of the Atlantic. I'm curious as to your thoughts on this report that banks might have been engaged uh, more than normal in dodgy behaviour, and particularly some of the European banks. And now we have the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority in Britain, saying that it is launching a probe and that it will you know, decide on... on 
what to do with that probe later on. Yeah, I mean, it's it, the group has been such a, a, a tough one for for a long time now. It's, it's it's funny though; the group certainly had a nice rally off the March lows, but it was you know, except for uh, one little period there in May, the uh, it's have still continued to lag, and it's been doing so for almost three years three years now. And this just throws another uh, wrench into the works. If anybody has been bullish on the group, they say, "Well, geez, the valuations look good. You know, trading uh, sometimes below book value in, in some cases." Uh, but again, this is this also has something to do with confidence. I mean, we had this problem where, you know, the same thing with this Nikola uh, situation. It's like, oh, Jesus, something going on there. Every time we get a, a significant pullback in the stock market, it exposes something uh, out there. And, geez, we bailed out all these banks, and yet they were still doing, uh, still doing these uh, things they shouldn't have been doing. Uh, what's going on here? And it just takes away some of the, not only confidence in the overall market, but certainly confidence in the group. And so it's still one I'm afraid uh, I'd want to avoid right now. So, Matt, I mean, it, when we think about the financials, I mean, it, that net interest margin story uh, just seems like a tough, tough story for the next several years, particularly if you take into account, you know, some of the recent comments from Fed Chairman Powell. It just doesn't that, – that revenue driver just doesn't seem to be there for the banks. No, and it's, it's, it's funny because I, I look back to the well, – in, in several different cases in, in the past, but you can go all the way back to the early 90s. Uh, when we had the after coming out of the SNL crisis back then, then of course uh, uh, the financial crisis uh, of, of 10 to 12 years ago. Each time, uh, the, the, the the kind of the core banking and the, like you said, net interest margins were something that they relied on. I mean, in, in back in the 1990s, they was you called they rode the yield curve uh, back to uh, to solvency, and they're not they're not going to be able to do that right now. I mean, again, I'm not worried about the the banks like we were back in 2009, 2008, uh, but it's still you. Your question, where is the reward? some point, this is going to be a great group to buy, but I've been cautious on it for three years, and I think it's, uh, it's still something that, that you want to avoid. And uh, again, it's, it's not so much you're going to lose money, but there are just other places that you're going to do much better. All right, Matt, it is always great to speak with you. Lots of insight into market movements, both day by day and sort of longer term. Matt Maley is Chief Market Strategist at Miller Tabak, founder of the Maley Report. And we have a little bit of a deterioration again. The S&P down 2.4%. The Dow actually down 2.8%. It is the NASDAQ that is leading, if you like. It's only, uh, quote unquote, down 1.8%. And again, those headlines that I was speaking about, the Financial Conduct Authority in Britain saying it has several probes open into money laundering and will make decisions by the end of the year on those probes this after BuzzFeed's big article about the various banks that have been engaged in shady activity to say the least. Shelly Banjo, senior writer for Bloomberg, giving us the latest on what's going on with TikTok. And Shelly, thanks so much for joining us here. But I, I have to be honest, I'm kind of confused here. I thought the initial expectation here was that President Trump was saying, hey, you have to sell your U.S. operations, or we're going to close it. But that's not what's happening here, is it? No, and I don't think you're the only one confused. It's been a roller coaster of a ride with TikTok, and it's still going. So definitely, uh, we don't have a done deal yet. But the, uh, Trump and Trump came out over the weekend and gave his blessing to a deal on the table. Um, what Trump had initially asked for is an outright sale of TikTok to a U.S. Uh, to an American company. And as well as a cut to uh, the U.S. Treasury, uh, you know, key money, as it's been referred to. So neither of those things happened. Uh, what deal we actually ended up getting uh, so far on the table is one in which ByteDance, the Chinese parent of TikTok, uh, maintains a majority stake um, in the company of TikTok. And um, 
20% of this new company, up to 20% of the new company will be owned by um, by Walmart and by Oracle with the hopes of doing a pre-IPO fundraising round and then uh, listing, uh, doing an IPO on an American exchange um, in about a year. So complicated. And China hasn't even agreed. In fact, last I heard, well, we did get the headline this morning that the Global Times is reporting that China is not going to accept the deal the way it is. But previously, the last I had heard from China was that they'd rather kill off the US operations of TikTok than sell it. Yeah, I mean, just like everybody else, it's gone up and down with China as well. You know, Global Times is an interesting example because over the weekend, the editor-in-chief came out and said, you know, this isn't great, but, you know, I think it's just something China can stomach. And then um, over the, over, um, over just the last hour, um, tweeted to say, um, you know, this is not actually something that, that uh, China can accept. And so, you know, we are in a stage where, the you know, the words are going back and forth like a tennis match. Um, and, uh, you know, right now, the, the company stuck in between all of this is, of course, TikTok. So, Shelley, I mean, clearly there are reasonable arguments to be made as it relates to national security and what data the Chinese may or may not be uh, gathering about U.S. consumers. Does this deal address that at all? So most of the national security and privacy experts that we've spoken to over the last few years, uh, last few days, I'm sorry, um, have said that this doesn't address that. But if this was really about national uh, security, then it really wouldn't matter that TikTok was creating uh, 25,000 jobs, as as uh, Trump had had said over the weekend. And none of those things would really enter into the discussion. Um, by including Oracle as a technology partner, what that does is it gives Oracle access to to look at the source code and to look at the algorithms, um, but it doesn't give them ownership of it. And so they can kind of monitor it. And, um, you know, that to many national security experts uh, is just not enough to really identify a threat if there if there is one. It's so strange because it's effectively an administration picking the companies that are allowed access to this information, right? So we know that other companies were interested, but it's Oracle and Walmart now that are the chosen two, Shelley. Have we ever seen this before? No, I mean, the issue with uh, other companies that were interested, like Microsoft, was that they got into the game when they thought it was going to be an all-out sale. They said, yeah, of course we want to own this asset, uh, you know, own this this popular company. Um, But when it became clear that it would just become a partnership, um, Microsoft, um, you know, didn't end up didn't end up actually wanting to go much further and and bite dance this the same way. They couldn't reach an agreement. And so, you know, all of this cherry picking of companies and and banning them and things like that is just completely, completely unprecedented um, in the U.S., uh, particularly for social media companies. So, Shelley, just real quickly here, is this expected to close? Well, I think there's still a few hurdles that have to happen. I mean, Trump it was the biggest one and gave his, you know, to, to using his words, gave his blessings over the weekend. Um, but it's anything but a done deal. There, There's a lot of momentum within the administration to get this across the finish line. Um, but again, a lot of these things can be delayed. You know, Donald Trump put out, a, this is all being done, you know, via executive order. So if right. he just put out another delay, he can delay it again. Um, you know, we can keep going with these delays until after the U.S. presidential <laughs> election, and then who knows right. what happens. Okay. Shelley, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate uh, you coming on and sharing your knowledge here of this ever-changing uh, issue here. Shelley Banjo, senior writer for Bloomberg TikTok.
Oracle, will a deal happen? Will it really be material to national security? We will see. And we have a VIX that is above 30 today. That's a pretty big increase, but not surprising when you see the volatility in the markets. Another down day for the indices, and we are dipping further into down territory with the Dow back down below 3%, 3.3% lower at this point, and it's picking up as well the steam for the S&P and the Nasdaq. And of course, a big move in the 30-year yield as well today, Paul. The 30-year yeah. yield now yielding just below 141. This uh, presumably a little bit to do with Robert Kaplan's comments to Bloomberg. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, uh, you know, no matter how you slice it here, um, we are lower for longer as it relates to rates. And, uh, um, you know, you hear uh, Chairman Powell talking about 2023, maybe even uh, beyond that in terms of being accommodative here and injecting liquidity into the marketplace. And uh, we're seeing that in the in the yields. Uh, but I think the market today, uh, just a lot more uncertainty about political issues and the, the pandemic as well. Indeed. And uh, somebody that might know a lot about this is uh, somebody who watches rates constantly. He's a fixed income senior portfolio manager and also head of the municipal bond group at Federated Hermes. So basically spends his entire day watching (laughs) these rates and uh, watching spreads and all sorts of markets. RJ Gallo joins us now. RJ, the move in the 30 year, is it a big move, relatively speaking? I mean, we saw a six basis point move, basically. Oh, it's certainly material. I mean, we've been in a very constrained interest rate environment now for many months, pretty much since the highly dramatic, crazy days of, of March 2020 when COVID as a crisis really took off. We've been constrained to a narrow range in Treasury yields. We've been in a risk-on environment for corporate bonds relative to Treasury yields, both high yield and investment grade. So when you see moves like you're seeing today, uh, I don't want to overstate it, but I think this is a material shift in the outlook. Um, I understand the election is, is a, casting a big shadow over everything, and it just got bigger with the passing of Justice Ginsburg. Everything has gotten a little bit more complicated, and I think that the rates market is reacting to that. One of the areas that the Fed obviously is looking at is inflation, and you know, talking about Chairman Powell and his Jackson Hole address, suggesting that the Fed would allow inflation to go above 2% for a certain period of time. To me, I was just wondering kind of how you how you take that in because we've have it's been a long time since we've had two percent inflation. I'm just wondering what the policy is behind that and how you view inflation going forward. The Fed has disappointed, to put it mildly, in terms of its ability to hit its inflation target. We've had two percent written down in black and white by the Fed since you know since 2012 in a formal sense, but well before that in an informal sense, and we've spent most of the last decade plus with inflation below that. So I think there's a tendency in the markets to look at what the Fed said at Jackson Hole, what they reaffirmed at the FOMC meeting uh, on September 16th, I think it was, um, saying, okay, you didn't tell us anything new. You basically said that it's, it's, no, it's, no, it's not a target. It's, it's a long-run objective. You can go above it. You can go below it due to the now clear overlay of an average inflation, inflation objective. Um, but they did say something that was very significant. They basically overturned decades of Fed precedent when they said that only shortfalls in employment will be considered in setting policy. In other words, when unemployment is really low, say 3.5%, where it wasn't all that long ago, the Fed won't, by itself, look at that variable and preemptively tighten for fear that inflation will build from tight labor markets. That's 
very different than what Paul Volcker or Alan Greenspan or even Bernanke and Yellen would have told you. So well, that is a big change. Yeah, and in fact, I, I don't know if you managed to see the comments from Robert Kaplan speaking with Bloomberg earlier, but essentially he dissented last month and said, you know, we have to be careful here because the pandemic will pass at some point. Yes, I, I feel that uh, I did see just the headlines um, on uh, uh, from, from the Fed's Kaplan, and I, I felt when I saw his dissent, uh, he, he probably has a little bit more consistency with the Fed's framework that has prevailed for decades, which I just alluded to. Mm. Um, I do think that Chairman Powell was asked directly in the press conference following the FOMC meeting, um, how do you square ultra-low rates and basically tabling the whole idea of being preemptive when labor markets are tight? How do you square that with financial stability? Won't that change in framework, that asymmetry with respect to labor markets, build excesses in the financial system? Chair Powell came back and basically echoed uh, Chair Yellen from years ago that they don't believe monetary policy is the primary means by which you regulate stability in the financial system. They have other tools, macroprudential tools, regulation to be specific, uh, to try to prevent excesses from building. Uh, jury's out on that, in my opinion. I mean, when, when rates are very, very low, when the Fed is telling you they're going to target zero rates, that can help to fuel imbalances, excesses in the financial system. Our, it's not clear that our financial regulatory framework has evolved so much that we'll be able to tamp down those excesses from becoming regrettable, you know, building the next bubble, if you will. And that's basically where, where Kaplan was coming out, I think. Hey, RJ, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate that. Got to be tough work uh, for a fixed income manager in a zero rate environment. RJ Gallo, senior portfolio manager, is also head of the municipal bond group at Federated Hermes um, based uh, in Pittsburgh. Uh, we appreciate his comments. And Vani, it's uh, again, no matter where you look here, it just screams out at you lower rates for longer. Uh, and it seems like the Fed is very comfortable with that outlook. No shortage of supply, at least if there's yes. any silver lining, Paul. I mean, everywhere you look, you're just getting bonds thrown at you from the mini markets right through treasuries it's uh, it's really pretty phenomenal for somebody like RJ Gallo I'm sure thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets podcast you can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer I'm Bonnie Quinn I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn and I'm Paul Sweeney I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney before the podcast you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio